God had entered the world as a baby. Yet were some to chance upon the sheep stable on the outskirts of Bethlehem that morning. What a peculiar scene they would behold. The stable stinks like all stables do. The stench of urine, dung, and sheep reeks pungently in the air. The ground is hard. The hay is scarce. Cobwebs cling to the ceiling and a mouse scurries across the dirt floor. A more lowly place of birth could not exist. Off to one side sit a group of shepherds. They sit silently on the floor, perhaps perplexed, perhaps in awe, no doubt in amazement. Their night watch has been interrupted by an explosion of light from heaven and a symphony of angels. God goes to those who have time to hear him. And so on this cloudless night, he went to simple shepherds. Near the young mother sits the weary father. If anyone is dozing, he is. He can't remember the last time he sat down. And now that the excitement has subsided a bit, now that Mary and the baby are comfortable, he leans against the wall of the stable and feels his eyes grow heavy. He still hasn't figured it all out. The mystery of the event puzzles him. But he hasn't the energy to wrestle with questions. What's important is that the baby is fine and that Mary is safe. As sleep comes, he remembers the name the angel told him to use, Jesus. We will call him Jesus. Wide awake is Mary. My, how young she looks. Her head rests on the soft leather of Joseph's saddle. The pain has been eclipsed by wonder. She looks into the face of the baby, her son, her Lord, His Majesty. At this point in history, the human being who best understands who God is and what He is doing is a teenage girl in a smelly stable. She can't take her eyes off Him. Somehow Mary knows she is holding God. So this is He. She remembers the word of the angel. His kingdom will never end. He looks like anything but a king. His face is prunish and red. His cry, though strong and healthy, is still the helpless, piercing cry of a baby. And he is absolutely dependent upon Mary for his well-being. Majesty in the midst of the mundane. Holiness in the filth of sheep manure and sweat. Divinity entering the world on the floor of a stable, through the womb of a teenager, in the presence of a carpenter. She touches the face of the infant God. How long was your journey? This baby had overlooked the universe. These rags keeping him warm were the robes of eternity. His golden throne room had been abandoned in favor of a dirty sheep pen. And the worshiping angels had been replaced with kind but bewildered shepherds. Well, meanwhile, the city hums. The merchants are unaware that God had visited their planet. The innkeeper would never believe that he just sent God out into the cold. And the people would scoff at anyone who told them the Messiah lay in the arms of a teenager on the outskirts of their village. They were all too busy to consider the possibility. Those who missed His Majesty's arrival that night missed it not because of evil acts or malice. No, they missed it because they simply weren't looking. Little has changed in the last 2,000 years.
has it. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warmed in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Well, a teacher read to her daycare students the story of Christmas and wanted to make sure that the kids understood the story, so she quizzed them, and she said, um, uh, what do we call the three wise men? And a five-year-old boy quickly raised his hand and said, we call them the three maggots. Well, the, the teacher didn't bat an eye, just kind of went with it and said, well, what were the gifts that the three magi gave to the Christ child? And the same kid stood up and he said, gold, Frankensteins, and Smurfs. <laughs> well, he messed it up a little bit. A lot of people do. There was a girl who came home from her Sunday school class, waving the paper in her hand, a drawing that she made of Christmas, and she said, Mommy, teacher said I made the most unusual drawing of anybody in the class. And Mom looked at it and said, Well, I would have to agree with your teacher. It is most unusual. Why did you draw everybody in an airplane flying? The girl said, Well, Mom, that's the flight into Egypt. <laughs> the mom said, oh, Okay, um, who's this mean-looking man in the very front of the airplane? And the girl, bewildered, said, Well, Mom, that's Punchus, the pilot. <laughs> now, at this point, Mom said, Oh, well, um, I do see Jesus, Mary, and Joseph sitting together. That's nice. But who's that big, fat guy next to Mary? And the little girl said, Well, that's round John Virgin. A lot of people mess the story up. A lot of adults mess the story up. The Barna group polled Americans, 88% of whom claim to be Christians. Of that group, 
only 37% said that the birth of Christ was the most important celebration of the Christmas season. Others gave a variety of things that the, the meaning of it is spending time with family and showing that you love one another. But only 37% said that the real meaning of Christmas, the most significant event, is Jesus, His birth. If you ask most people about Christmas, they'll tell you one thing, but it seems like it does boil down to gifts. We give and we receive gifts every year. Kids love to receive them. When you get older, you love to give them. uh, And you love to exchange them for a bigger size, perhaps. We all love to shake them and see what's inside of the present. But gift giving, as you know, can be not only complicated, but expensive. I found something I wanted to share with you. You've all heard of the 12 days of Christmas, the song, the 12 days of Christmas, and the story of it. Somebody decided to figure out what it would cost to do it again. If you were to pay for the 12 days of Christmas, it would cost $15,000. Now, it's itemized. Uh, some items are readily affordable. The partridge that's in the pear tree would be $34.99. Uh, two turtle doves, 50 bucks. Um, and according to the Philadelphia State Zoo, six geese a laying would run you about $150. Now the price starts to go up. If you add 11 pipers piping, that will be $1,000. 12 drummers drumming will be $1,000. The big expense, of course, would be the 12 lords a-leaping. And it's estimated if you could find them, it'll run in the neighborhood of about $3,000. Now, We all know where this is going tonight. The issue isn't the gifts, plural, that we give or receive. The issue is the gift, singular, that God gave. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, that He gave His only begotten Son. Paul the Apostle said, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. It was the gift of His Son to the earth. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth, talked about this gift. Here was the prediction. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government there shall be no end. All of this was predicted by Isaiah that A, the Messiah would be born into the world as a baby, and B, that it would be God's gift to mankind. A son is given. A few things about this gift from God. First of all, as we just alluded to, the gift was predicted hundreds of years on many occasions before the event ever happened. The prophets, the ancient Israeli pundits spoke about this son being given to the world. In fact, the Jews have always believed in the coming Messiah. It has been a Jewish prayer for a long time. The Orthodox Jew will pray, if not every day, every Sabbath day, I believe in the coming of the Messiah. And though he tarry, yet shall I wait for him every coming day. Now, prior to the arrival of Jesus... People waited for the Messiah, but it really wasn't until around the time that Jesus showed up, just prior to that time, that there was an increased expectation among all of the Jews of Israel that the Messiah would come shortly. 
Um, historians like Flavius Josephus and others speak about this. Rabbi Abba Hallel Silver, who wrote a book called History of Messianic Speculation in Israel, said these words. Prior to the first century, messianic interest was not excessive. The first century, however, especially the generation before the destruction of the second temple, that's the time, the era of Jesus, witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. The Messiah was expected to come around the second quarter of the first century CE. Guess what? He did. And again, he was spoken about on so many occasions by so many different people of who he was, what he would do, where he would be born, how he would suffer. One of the most famous predictions is his birth. It's about Bethlehem. Uh, the prophet Micah said by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, But you, Bethlehem, though you be small among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who will be ruler in Israel, whose going forth has been of old even from everlasting. So it was predicted that this Savior Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. What's really cool is how he got to Bethlehem. Because by all means, he should have been born in Nazareth, way up north in Galilee. That's where Mary lived. That's where Joseph lived. It was their home. It was the place of Joseph's occupation. But the prophecy said he'd have to be born in Bethlehem. It's interesting how it worked. We read just a moment ago that Caesar Augustus over in Rome decided to flex his mighty Roman muscles, his political might, and make everybody go back to the hometown of his origin, his lineage. For Joseph and Mary, that was Bethlehem. That's where David was born. And so they took the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. She's with child. She delivers, and Jesus is born in Bethlehem. What's great about that is you've got Caesar Augustus thinking, I am somebody. I am a mighty ruler. God would say, you're just a pawn on my chessboard, pal. I'm going to inspire you to tell the world to be registered so that Joseph and Mary can come to Bethlehem and fulfill that prediction. It was Isaiah that predicted he would be born a virgin, that he would die in between two criminals. Others predicted he would be born of the lineage of King David himself. There's a book I took out this afternoon. I like to look at it often. It's one of my favorite in my library. It's a book called Science Speaks. It's written by two authors, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman. And Peter Stoner was a mathematician, a scientist from uh, southern mid-California, And the book, part of it centers around the probability of Jesus fulfilling predictions. You know, you can say, well, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, a lot of people have been born in Bethlehem. Thousands for generations. They're still being born there today. But the Bible also says other things. The Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. So now you have to ask the question, how many people born in Bethlehem have been sold for 30 pieces of silver? Narrows it down quite a bit. There are other predictions that at his death, he would have two criminals, one on the right, one on the left. How many people born in Bethlehem, sold for 30 pieces of silver, died with a criminal on their right and on their left? On and on these predictions go. In fact, Stoner counts up about 300 or more direct or indirect predictions of this Messiah. Well, he decides to figure out what the odds would be 
I've shared this before, but every Christmas I like to pull it out again because it's powerful. Stoner took eight of major predictions given about this Jesus before he was ever born and asked the question, what would the odds of one man fulfilling just eight predictions be? His number was 1 in 10 to the 17th power. And then he gives a visual description of that number and the probability. He said, you could take that number and you could fill the entire state of Texas with that many silver dollars two feet thick. Picture Texas filled with silver dollars two feet thick. Mark one, blindfold a guy and say walk all the way from the tip to the top Side to side, take as long as you want and find that one silver dollar that I have marked in advance. The odds of him finding it would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. The odds of Jesus fulfilling eight predictions. Going on a little further, he said, what would the mathematical probability be of the fulfillment of double that amount? 16 predictions. He came up with the number 1 in 10 to the 45th power. Now, Texas is too small for the visual depiction. In fact, if you had that many silver dollars, you could build a solid ball of silver. It would be so big that if you started at the center and went out to the circumference of that silver ball, it would be the distance the earth is to the sun times 30. Now, the earth to the sun is 93 million miles. And if you take 93 million miles times 30, that would be from the center to the circumference of that silver ball with that many silver dollars. Mark one in advance, blindfold a person, tell him to take 40 billion years and march through that ball and find the silver dollar. The odds of him finding that one would be the same odds of one man fulfilling 16 predictions. Fascinated by this, Stoner went on to 48 predictions. He used electrons instead of silver dollars. The point being... For someone to say, well, it was self-fulfilled prophecy, it was just coincidence, is absolute insanity mathematically. So this gift of God giving his son to the world was a gift that was predicted. But also, when the gift was given to the earth, the gift came in humble wrapping. What could be more humble than a stable born of a peasant teenager and a carpenter stepfather in the backwaters of the Middle East, Bethlehem of all places. Some people spend as much time on wrapping Christmas presents as buying them. In fact, I've even noticed certain stores around town that are gift wrapping stores, and I've seen the prices of some of the gift wrap. And In some cases, the gift wrap would cost more than the gift. A hint to you gals who give gifts to guys. The wrapping is very irrelevant. You ever watched a guy open a gift? You ever see a guy open a gift? Oh, what a beautiful bow. I'm going to save it. Oh, and the paper. My goodness. No, it's... Cool. Well, when God sent his gift, his son came in a humble package. He wasn't born in Rome. Bethlehem. They didn't lay him on satin sheets like you would think a king would lie, but a feeding trough of animals. There weren't doctors and nurses in a fancy hospital monitoring the birth. There were animals around him and some shepherds who came in later. 
face it, we've, we've cleaned up the Christmas story pretty well, haven't we? We've taken the stable and sanitized it. Jesus was born in a very earthy environment. Very humble environment. The animals didn't have halos like the manger scenes depict them. There was no angel suspended on a string behind. Nor was there a scent of pine tree, pine needles. It was very, very earthy. Third, the gift, when it was given, was undeserved. It was an undeserved gift. God gave His Son not because we deserve it. How do we give gifts? I bet that you do not have a gift under your tree and you just can't wait to give it to that irate neighbor who always says bad things to you. I bet not a one of us here has a card for the person in town who's trying to sue us or put us out of business. No, we give gifts to people that we like, we love, or their relatives. We have to, perhaps, but usually not to people that we hate. When God gives gifts, it's the opposite. He takes those in the lowest favor or having no favor at all. In fact, those who would blaspheme him and gives this gift. Paul put it this way in Romans. God demonstrated his love to us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He puts the most undeserving in the highest of favor. And that's what makes a gift a gift, isn't it, really? You don't deserve a gift. It's free. Would you be insulted, mom and dad, if tomorrow morning your kids open that beanie baby and they stand up? Or or that new truck, that train, whatever it is, What if they were to say, Mommy, Daddy, I promise I'll pay you back every penny of it. Show me the receipts. I'll pay you back in full. I'll give you my allowance. I'll sell papers. You'd say, excuse me, I love you. It's a gift. I give it because I love you. That's that's all that needs to happen. My love toward the object of my love is why I give the gift. That's how it is with God. The perfect parent. Ephesians tells us, for by grace, that means unmerited, undeserved favor, you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Also, in in Romans, Paul put it this way, being justified freely, better put, without a cause. God justified you, though you have no cause to give him. You can't say, you know, I deserve your salvation. I've been a good guy. We've been justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Folks, the most destructive danger to the church is not atheism, agnosticism, cultism, paganism. It's legalism. The most destructive thing is adding the law, adding my works to the gospel of grace and making it a different gospel. The most dangerous thing is to tell people the wrong way to get right with God. And if you tell them, well, you'd be a good boy every single day, you try your hardest, you earn your way really hard, and at the end, if you score enough points, and God may grade on a curve, but if you score enough points, He'll let you in. No, He justifies freely without a cause. It is a gift of God. When Jesus hung on the cross, one of the last things He said is, it is finished. You know what that means? It means it is finished. It means you can't add anything to it. I know it's finished, but let me add. No, you can't. The word in Greek is tetelestai. Literally translated, it could be paid 
in fall. In fact, archaeologists tell us that there is a corollary word in Latin for legal transactions. It's the little phrase consummatum est, which means the tax receipt or the debt has been paid off. So when he hung on the cross and said to Telestai, he was saying, it's finished. I've done it all. It's paid in full. It's free. It's a free gift. It's undeserved. Fourthly and lastly, the gift that God gave to the earth was a preview of coming attractions. The gift of that humble baby born in a manger would just be the first of many gifts to be given. Salvation, heaven, love, peace, meaning, purpose. All of that comes with that package. In fact, that little baby grew up as an adult and gave the ultimate. He gave his life. He gave his life for the sins of the world. And herein is the heart of the Christmas story. The heart of the Christmas story is why was this son given? Why was this gift given? Did Jesus come to the earth so that, as the fellow said in the video, uh, store owners can make millions of dollars? And did Jesus come to the earth just to give us a few more days off of work every year at the season? A few extra days off of school? No. Nor did Jesus come just to be a model teacher and give good examples and wonderful teachings so we could say, bravo, what a great humanist. The baby came to not stay a baby, but to grow up to be a real adult savior to die for sins. Matthew records the reason why he came. He said in Matthew 1, She will bring forth a son, said the angel. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name would be Jesus because the word Jesus speaks of his mission. Jesus, Yeshua, common Jewish name. But it means God saves. God is salvation. And that was his mission. That's why Simeon, when he saw Jesus come into the temple with his parents, lifted his eyes and said, I can die in peace now, Lord, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which shall be for all people. This baby was salvation. He would grow up and be a savior. The important issue of Christmas is not when Jesus came. And really not so much that he came as why he came. That's the issue of this season, why he came. You know, there is no salvation in the birth of Christ. Neither is there salvation in any teaching of Jesus Christ. There's only salvation in his act of death, burial, and resurrection for sinners. And it's when we look at that and we let him be our substitution in his death, burial, and resurrection, where we admit, I'm a sinner, I need your salvation, not by my works. I need you to save me. I need you to cleanse me. I admit I can't do it on my own. Therein lies salvation. That's why he came. Think about it. He was born to die. I don't know a parent. I've never met a parent. If you were to quiz them and say, what plans do you have for your child? The parent wouldn't say, death. Yeah, I just want him to grow up and die. No, I want him to live. I want him to become someone great. A sports star or 
a doctor perhaps. But remember now, when Jesus was born, as He was growing up as a child and those magi came from the east, they gave gold, that speaks of a king, frankincense, that's what priests use in the temple. But myrrh, now that was the oddest gift of all. Myrrh was embalming fluid. It was used in the Middle East when a person died. In fact, Jesus, when He died, they wrapped Him with myrrh and aloes. Wouldn't that be odd, parents, if somebody came to your house, if your infant child was born and said, hey, listen, congratulations, here's some embalming fluid for later on, you know, of course. But that was so predictive. It was predictive of why He came. See, that's part of the Christmas story that's not told. Those sweet little hands and feet were meant to have spikes driven through them. That that tender head and sparkling eyes would one day wear a crown of thorns. The angel told Mary and Joseph that they shall call His name Jesus because He's going to save people from sin. And I wonder, how much did Mary know the night she held Jesus for the first time in her arms as she looked at Him? What did she know about Him? What had the angel so disclosed that was on her heart? Max Lucado supposes that this could be her prayer. God, O infant God, heaven's fairest child, conceived by the union of divine grace with our disgrace, sleep well. Sleep well. Bask in the coolness of this night bright with diamonds. Sleep well for the heat of anger simmers nearby. Enjoy the silence of the crib for the noise of confusion rumbles in your future. Savor the sweet safety of my arms for the day is soon coming when I cannot protect you. Rest well, tiny hands, for though you belong to a king, you will touch no satin, you will own no gold, you will grasp no pen, you will guide no brush. No, your tiny hands are reserved for works more precious. To touch a leper's open wound, to wipe a widow's weary tear, to claw the ground of Gethsemane. Your hands, so tiny, so tender, so white, clutched tonight in an infant's fist, they are not designed to hold a scepter nor wave from a palace balcony. They are reserved instead for a Roman spike that will staple them to a Roman cross. Sleep deeply, tiny eyes. Sleep while you can, for soon the blurriness will clear and you will see the mess that we have made of your world. You will see our nakedness, for we cannot hide. You will see our selfishness, for we cannot give. You will see our pain, for we cannot heal. O eyes that will see hell's darkest pit and witness her ugly prince, sleep, please sleep. Sleep while you can. And lay still, tiny mouth. Lay still, mouth from which eternity will speak. Tiny tongue that will soon summon the dead that will define grace, that will silence our foolishness, rosebud lips upon which ride a starborn kiss of forgiveness to all who believe in you, and of death to all who deny you, lay still. And tiny feet cupped in the palm of my hand, rest. For many difficult steps lie ahead of you. Do you taste the dust of the trails you will travel? Do you feel the cold seawater upon which you will walk? Do you wrench at the envision of the nail you will bear? 
Do you fear the steep descent down the spiral staircase into Satan's domain? Rest, tiny feet. Rest today so that tomorrow you might walk with power. Rest, for millions will follow in your steps. And little heart, holy heart, pumping the blood of life through the universe, how many times will we break you? You will be torn by the thorns of our accusations. You will be ravaged by the cancer of our sin. You will be crushed under the weight of your own sorrow. And you will be pierced by the spear of our rejection. Yet, yet in that piercing, in the ultimate ripping of muscle and membrane, in that final rush of blood and water, you will find rest. Your hands will be freed. Your eyes will see justice. Your lips will smile and your feet will carry you home. And there you will rest again, this time in the embrace of your Father. Now, I I didn't read that to you to ruin your Christmas spirit, just the opposite, but to make it count, to make this season count. In fact, we read this and we are warmed by the knowledge that He fulfilled His mission. You will call His name Jesus. He will save His people from their sin. It is finished. Mission completed, on target, done as expected. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Why? So he could save. And he does, anyone who comes to him. There was a story that I read of the shepherds who were keeping their flocks by night. Now we all know what happened. The angels came and said, go check it out. There's a Savior. You can't miss him. He's in a he's in a cave. He's lying in cloths in a feeding trough. Look at it. Spread the news. And they did. One story that I read supposes that one of the shepherds decided to stay, didn't go, didn't check it out. Forty years go by and he's talking to his grandson and he tells the story of the night the angels appeared and the sound he heard, the the voice of the angels, the bright light. And about this child Jesus, and the little grandson said, Grandpa, is all that true about this little baby named Jesus? Did that really happen? And the grandpa was silent, but then went on about more stories. Well, I heard it said he grew up and He walked on water and he raised the dead and he cured people and he said the most amazing things. And some even say after he died on a cross, he he lived again, he rose. Well, Grandpa, is that really true? And finally, Grandpa had to hang his head and say, "I, I don't really know. I never went to see. I never went that night to check it out for myself. How many people there are like that? They hear message after message, Christmas after Christmas, see the nativity set, hear the songs. See God change people's lives around them, wives, husbands, children, parents. But they never check it out themselves. Now that's the tragedy of Christmas. Well, I don't know if I believe that God will do that in my life. Have you checked it out? Don't knock it till you've checked it out. And let that baby grow up to be a savior can save anyone from sin. You say, yeah, but wait a minute. What's all this about peace on earth that we sing at Christmas? Isn't that what the angel said? 
Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. What Was the angel mocking? Was he looking at the condition of the earth throughout history and mocking? Because there is no peace. And if you look at it from that perspective, you'd be right. Did you know that only 8% of world history has recorded peace? Did you know that in 3,100 years of recorded history, 8,000 peace treaties have been broken? Peace on earth? Excuse me? Hello? What did the angel mean? It's easy. A modern translation gives it better. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men in whom God is well pleased or to men and women in whom His favor rests. Big difference in meaning. You won't find peace wrapped in a present under your tree. You'll find it in a heart that's humble to admit, I need you this season, Lord. I give my life to you. I need a Savior to save me from sin. I I need more than an icon painted on a window that says Feliz Navidad. I need the real Savior who will save me from my sins. Do it now. And in doing that, you could give the best gift to your Creator, your heart, your life, your obedience, your allegiance. It's all He wants. All He wants is all of you. Father, we pray that we, like the shepherds, would go and see for ourselves if this Jesus is really real, investigated enough, and find out if the experience is true that you will forgive us of sin, you will take away guilt, you'll give us purpose and joy and peace in our hearts. And right now, we're just thinking about our lives, Lord, and so much of our activity in the last few weeks has been on our feet, not much on our knees. And now we think, Father, in this season, why You came. And Tomorrow is the day we celebrate that marks Your birth, the birth of the Son of God into the world, God incarnate. And we think that the best way to live is to follow You, to admit we need You, to quit trying to do it ourselves and to surrender our life to You, repent of our sins as You said, and to ask Jesus, yes, to invite Jesus to be our personal Savior and follow Him as our Lord daily. In this moment of thought, reverence, if you've come tonight and you haven't given Jesus your life, you haven't turned to Him completely, you haven't made Him your Savior, I'm not asking if you've gone to church or you believe God exists. It's not real. It's not personal. You've never asked Jesus to be your master. I'm going to ask you to do it tonight, right now. Give God your heart, your life. Best thing you could do to celebrate Christmas is to know Jesus Christ. If you would like to do that right now, if you're not certain that if you were to die tonight, you'd be in heaven, if you couldn't say, I know for certain that I'm saved, but you want to know for certain, I just want you to raise your hand. And I'll look and I'll acknowledge your hand and I'll pray for you as we close this service. Just raise it up so I can see it. Keep it up. God bless you up front. Anybody else? Raise it up high. In the back. I see your hands. A few of you. Anybody else? Over here to my right. In the balcony. 
Father, I pray for all of these around this room right now. On this Christmas Eve, we've gathered together to think about you and to celebrate you. But it's a lot more than singing songs and having a good feeling. It's having a good life, a life of forgiveness, a clean soul. Father, I pray for all these right now who have raised their hand. And that indicates a heart that is crying out to you, asking for your love, meaning, purpose, and forgiveness. Lord, as they ask you to be their Savior, come in to their hearts. Change them, Lord. Make it so real that tomorrow when they wake up, they'll have the biggest smile they've ever seen on their own face. Joy and peace would reside as forgiveness of sins is enjoyed. In Jesus' name. Now, if you raised your hand wherever you are, wherever you are right now, I want to lead you in a word of prayer. Let's all bow our heads for just a moment again. And if you raise your hand right now, either out loud or in your heart, just say, God, I am a sinner. I admit it. Save me. Forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me, Jesus. And right now, tonight, December 24th, 1997, I give you my life. Take it. I'm going to live for you and obey you. Transform me. Change me completely. In Jesus' name, amen.